Welcome to the 318th episode of COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Jacob Steer-Williams. I'm a historian of public health at the College of Charleston in Charleston, South Carolina. This week, I will be the guest host of COVID Calls, while the program's founder and host, Dr. Scott Knowles, takes a much-needed reprieve. My focus in the history of public health is on the field of epidemiology, a science unfolding in real time during the COVID-19 pandemic. This week on COVID Calls, I'll be speaking with some incredible scholars who in some way work on the field of epidemiology. If you missed yesterday's episode, I had a terrific conversation about origin myths and the identity crisis in epidemiology with Dr. Lucas Engelman. Today, I'll be chatting with another expert in the history of epidemiology, Dr. Jim Downs. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. To find the program, go to COVID Calls YouTube TV channel. You can also hear COVID calls anytime recorded as a podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at COVID calls, myself at Steer Williams, or Scott at US of Disaster. Please help spread the word about COVID calls and feel free to send suggestions for guests and future topics to either myself or Scott Knowles. As of today, August 10th, 2021, there have been 4,308,383 deaths from COVID-19 worldwide, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. It's absolutely sobering for me to sit here today and to think that in the past 24 hours since I spoke with Lucas on this program, 9,367 people have died of COVID-19. The JHU Resource Center reports today that 51% of the U.S. population has been vaccinated against COVID-19. American states like Connecticut and Maine are leading the way, with the percentage vaccinated above 60%, while states like Alabama, 35%, Louisiana, 37%, Georgia, 40%, and my own South Carolina, 42% rank at the bottom. COVID-19 is surging in states that have the lowest vaccination rates. As a way to humanize those numbers, I will each day this week read a real life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way. That's something that Scott has been doing from the outset of COVID calls and it's a powerful reminder of the ways that pandemics strike populations, but we experience them as individuals in our individual communities. Today, I'm sharing a story from reporter Aubrey Killian of WDSU in New Orleans, Louisiana, from yesterday, August 9th, 2021. Metri, Louisiana. Ripped apart by COVID-19, a Metri family dealing with heartbreaking loss. My mom died at 4.15, my aunt died at 12.18, so just a few short hours of 48 hours. They were both absolutely beautiful women, strong, independent women, Emily Casanova said. Casanova said she's trying to wrap her mind around the death of her mother and aunt in one weekend. Her mother, Samantha Casanova, died Friday. She was a nurse for the past 25 years and lived to help others. My mom was loving, goofy, and just a beautiful soul, Casanova said. Her aunt, Jan Fetka, died Sunday. Fetka was a cook who loved to feed her family and make others laugh. 
I love and miss them very much, Casanova said. One more I love you. One more hi goodbye just to hear their voice one more time. This horrible infection doesn't care who you are or doesn't care what kind of family you're going to leave behind. It doesn't care. It's going to take no matter who it is. It sucks to have to happen like that. Try and stay healthy. Wear the mask as much as you can. If you're able to get vaccinated, if it's something you feel comfortable with, you do that. Casanova said they fought for weeks at East Jefferson General Hospital and were put on ventilators. Casanova said her mother and aunt were not vaccinated. Doctors and nurses did everything they could. Unfortunately, I think another thing is that they did wait a little too long. They tried to beat it at home. The amount of care they had for my mom and aunt was immense. What makes it even harder is her mom's birthday is Thursday. Hug your mom and your aunt, any parental figure so tight, because you don't know when they're going to go or when the last hug will be, Casanova said. So my guest today, who I'm really thrilled to talk with, Dr. Jim Downs is the Gilder Lehrman NEH Chair of Civil War Era Studies and History at Gettysburg College. He's the author of two widely acclaimed books, Sick from Freedom, African-American Sickness and Suffering During the Civil War and Reconstruction, published with Oxford University Press in 2012, and Stand By Me, The Forgotten History of Gay Liberation, published with Basic Books in 2016. In Herculean fashion for an academic, Jim has also edited four anthologies and dozens of articles, essays, op-eds, and he regularly appears in The Atlantic, The New Yorker, Slate, The New York Times, Chronicle of Higher Education, and the LA Review of Books. He's the co-series editor with Catherine Clinton of History in the Headlines. In his forthcoming book, Maladies of Empire, How Slavery, Colonialism, and War Transformed Medicine, is due out soon with Harvard University Press. And you can now pre-order your own copy, which I highly suggest that you do. Maladies of Empire is a path-breaking project on the global origins and entanglements of epidemiology with colonialism, race, and warfare in the 18th and the 19th centuries. Jim, it's a joy to speak with you today. Throughout this week, during my time guest hosting COVID calls, I wanna take a deep dive with a bunch of incredible experts like yourself into the field of epidemiology and how it relates to the unfolding COVID-19 pandemic. Given the breadth of your work, particularly this exciting new book, Maladies of Empire, there's a lot for us to talk about today. So tell us, where are you calling from and what is the pandemic situation there? Well, first, uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm calling from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And the pandemic situation here seems to be relatively um, under control. I get the citizen app um, percentage. I think it was like 2% positivity rate, uh, which seemed relatively low. Uh, people are people are wearing masks. I was coming up from my office last night at 9 p.m. on a very lonely, dark road. (laughs) And uh, I I passed a student who was masked up. So uh, it seems to be okay here. Mm -hmm. That's that's really interesting, um, especially for to hear that story of of your own personal experience and be just a couple states away from you to the south and and be living a very different experience where people yeah. are not wearing masks and where rates are between 12 and 16% in right. the last week. So right. since the COVID-19 pandemic began, 
you've worked and lived in three different American cities, in New London, Connecticut, in New York City, and in Gettysburg, where you are now. Right. And I wonder if you sort of look back a little bit on the last year and a half, what has it been like to see the pandemic in, unfold in three different cities? Um, I, I would focus on New York because I was living in New York at the time when everything hit. And um, it was sort of, I mean, to me as an academic, as a historian, um, it was more of a frustrating experience, but probably not this for the reasons that most people think it's frustrating. Uh that is to say that I was getting tons of calls from concerned relatives and friends because uh, the infection rate was so high, the mortality rate was so high. Um, I was actually traveling back from the archives, looking up sources for my book at the Huntington. And I got back home and I wasn't feeling that well and I was really exhausted. Um, and I had an allergy, but it wasn't until uh, the New York Times reported that the loss of uh, sense of taste and smell were part of the pathology that I realized I had it. And it wasn't until, the, and I, but I couldn't get tested at the time. So this was the very early days of the, the uh, pandemic. There was no testing. And so I had to wait until the end of May, I think. And I took an antibody test, which proved that I was positive. So I actually had uh, COVID-19. As a, so I lived through it. My immune system cleared it. I was fine. Um, and I think that one of the frustrating things for me as the historian was that no government official obviously had that kind of experience going into it. But at the same time, they were acting as if this was the first time that a pandemic ever broke out or that city, state, or federal government needed to react. And the failure to sort of call in historians to actually think about how to develop quarantine measures, how to sort of think through um, this sort of debate between safeguarding the public health and safeguarding the economy got sort of played out as this like incredibly ideologically fused argument. But in fact, if you think about it historically, it's an argument that could be traced back to 1842 London. I mean, these are debates that are all, these are questions that are always informing and animating debates. And so I was sort of frustrated by the entire thing because it was treated as this sort of shock, like we don't know what to do. And I lived in 9-11. I was in New York. I was in graduate school studying for my oral exams when the planes hit. I was at Columbia. And so I know that was something like that never happened before, really. I mean, there's Pearl Harbor, but in actuality, this was new. I was there for the blackout. This was new. The pandemic, New York City, cholera, not new. Uh, diphtheria, not new. HIV, not new. I mean, New York was ground zero for plenty of epidemics, which honestly is like a book that I've been wanting to sort of think about writing um, after this book, which is that it has been the sort of ground zero. Um, and so what was frustrating was the refusal to bring in historians when in fact, so many of us were on Twitter, were banging drums saying, listen to us, or writing op-eds or doing things. And not to say that we had all of the answers, but we could help frame, we could help Think about the terms of the debate. We can contribute something. Um, so that was part of my experience. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. And I think you know, as you know, I was in the early stages of the pandemic, living here in Charleston, and and, and I distinctly remember hearing news stories, and I think even speaking with you on the phone a couple times when New York City was uh, ground zero for 
the early right. stages of COVID. And no one in Charleston and in South Carolina was taking it seriously. It was right. almost like this moment um, in the 1830s when cholera is ravaging Western Europe and Americans like ones in New York City and in Charleston were just like, it's not going to come here and it's not going to hurt us. Um, right. and, I, and I distinctly found felt that way um, because, you know, one of the things that I think historians of pandemics are so good at illustrating and have been for for a couple generations now is that pandemics, they, they strike the world, but we experience them very differently in time and space. And right. so, you know, that just goes back to the to the anecdote with which you started. I mean, from the from what you said in the intonation in your voice, I feel like you you and I don't want to speak for you, but you, you sounded like you felt pretty safe, like walking home. And, you know, out in my streets, in my town, because of where the rates are, I don't actually feel the same thing. And I, and I think that's super interesting, even bound within one country, let alone thinking right. about um, the world stage right now with, with how the pandemic is still unfolding. Right. Well, I mean, I think I'll be, I'll be totally transparent here and I'll be totally uh, maybe TMI here. Um, I'm a gay man, and as a as a gay man, um, we have to deal with infectious disease since I came out of the closet. And so there's a difference between having physical relationships, intimate relationships with someone and possibly catching something and walking down the street and not doing anything, just breathing air and catching something. I understand there's a risk. You chose to hook up with someone. You don't really choose to walk down the street. You have to walk down the street. That said, in living with infectious disease and thinking about infectious disease, I mean, I, I take an antiviral every day for HIV. I get tested for STIs every three months because I'm on an antiviral. I'm thinking about infectious disease in a way that I think that most people are not. Mm -hmm. And more to the point, the infectious diseases that I am often checked for, as most gay men are often checked for, cannot be cleared by your immune system in two, three weeks by your, like taking a nap. So the, I think there is, of course, we have to be concerned as, as like your opening vignette proved. We have to be concerned about the, the great morbidity and the great mortality that COVID is causing. But for the majority of people, your immune system can clear it. You really can't say that for lots of other infectious disease. And I think that that's it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult thing to say because when people say it, they say, are you a Trump supporter? No, I'm not a Trump supporter. I'm saying like, I'm, I'm thinking about infectious disease all of the time. I'm thinking about how it, it works with the body. And if you even think about what the vaccine's doing, most people don't really even understand that the vaccine is just triggering the immune system. The vaccine is not clearing COVID. I mean, the vaccine is triggering your immune system mm. to create an antibody to protect you. So I mm. guess that's, one of the ways I think that like growing up in the in the 90s and coming out in the early aughts and deal, having to have these conversations constantly with public health people, with people in my community, that I, I think I have a different framework for it. That's super interesting to me. So I want to put a couple of things together and, and, and have you help us to, to, to understand them, because I think the point that you're you're making right here is really important. And so and so let me ask you. Your your earlier book, Stand By Me, yeah. focuses on HIV AIDS activism yeah. in the gay community in right. the 70s, right? Before right. there's an explosion of, right. of HIV AIDS. Right. I wonder, like, 
the point you made earlier about activism and historians of medicine. And I wonder if there's like a Venn diagram here that you're trying to point to about a particular kind of activism and in a particular kind of way that historians of medicine might also have a voice here. And I wonder like, where do you see that activism happening? Because I think what you just said is like your personal experience as both a historian of medicine and through just who you are, it, right. it sheds important light on how we how we might navigate this this pandemic, um, even as very different selves. But I, but I wonder if you're really talking about some kind of bigger activism in the public discourse. Well, I mean, I think one of them is this. I mean, the bigger activism in the public discourse is that we had all of these amazing infomercials when we were kids, like cartoons about how does a bill become a law? And it was like they were like rock. I don't know. There were songs and they were lyrical. And we don't have basic information that people understand the difference between virus and bacteria. Right. So it's like when I was dealing with COVID last year, my students would, and I taught in person, were freaking out about wiping their desk. And I was like, you can, I had explained to them, I was like, you can wipe your desk until you're blue in the face. But like bacteria has been here before the dinosaurs and bacteria will outlive us. A virus needs a host. If someone in this room is not infected with COVID, you're fine. Now, of course, we have to be preventative with their mask and you could do things. But all of this, all of this work was really about you know, dealing with it was almost like it was bacterial and it wasn't. And so there was like basic things like why six feet, six feet, because, you know, if you're that close, you can get infected by the droplet, blah, 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 blah. So a lot of that information came out for me as a gay man thinking about HIV and how HIV spread, because initially it was like, oh, HIV, it could be oral sex, it could be anal sex, it could be kissing. And it was like, no, it's not in the saliva. And then there would be commer there would be like posters in gay bars with two black men on top of each other or something because this was a big thing in the 90s that it was spreading among black people the most. And they both had some um, a, a mask around their face saying, oh, I think he's not asking me for a condom because he's positive. Oh, I think he's not asking me for a condom because he's also negative. And it was like, there were all of these ways that we were taught about virus and where there were all of these ways that we were trained to think about it. And it was coming from community activists and it was part of our conversation. We learned from each other mm -hmm. and we learned that, listen, you have to be concerned. You could have no signs of syphilis and all of a sudden full body rash and a queen would know, girl, you need to go to the doctor because you're got, you have secondary syphilis. You didn't see primary syphilis. Like we knew. And I'm not trying to be superheroes. A lot of people didn't know, of course, of course, of course. But, you know, in the early aughts, in the early, I mean, uh, 2010, 2012, I remember walking in bars in Gay Newark uh, after hours clubs, and you were getting shots for meningitis. I mean, like, there is a way that the information can be deployed in easy, digestible ways at the community level, which queer people did, which Action Aids did, which gay community does, and other affinity groups can do as well. I mean, mm -hmm. um, so I think that I think that I hope COVID teaches us some like basics, um, so that we can be better armed and better prepared for how we're thinking about uh, the virus and and ways that you can catch it, ways you can't catch it. I mean, it's it's we have to get to that basic understanding. 
That's so fascinating because um, I uh, I worked on a, a a podcast series for the OAH, the more Organization of American Historians, trying to frame COVID and in some um, you know some historical examples, and and I and I did this uh, podcast on disinfection, and. What I opened in that um, with is seeing signs early in the COVID-19 pandemic all throughout Charleston for these billboards and these posters for disinfection services, that there are these companies that would come into your house or your place of business and they would, you know, like fumigate, I guess, um, for for bacteria, essentially. So they, they, they would be, a, it was a sort of practice that was preying on fear rather than on the actual epidemiology of the disease. And right. I, and I think what you're pointing to um, is something really fascinating using the example of HIV AIDS is how there's often been a disjunct between where the epidemiological knowledge is and then where on the one hand, and then the other hand, where the actual public health communication is. And I right. still see that as a major problem with how we, at least in this country, are, are handling COVID-19. Right. So there's, I mean, there's two, there's two things I want to say about that. The first I want to say is like, we're a year and a half into this and we have to realize that fear is part of the pathology and we have to do our best to address it. And there was the fear that people saw, like you read anything about cholera in the 19th century, like cholera biography by Christopher, of course, I'm forgetting his last name, Jacob, you know it. Uh, Right. Yeah. Uh, Fear is part of it. And you're like, you recognize it, you understand it, you see it, but it needs to be addressed. And there is ways in which the fear has escalated so much that it's become paralyzing. And that's part of it. And we need to acknowledge that. And we need to walk through it and say, this is where you can catch it, was where you can't catch it, et cetera. The second piece of this um, about the fear is that when COVID-19 first broke out, People kept on saying it's mysterious. Well, actually, it's not really that mysterious, quite frankly. We knew it was an upper respiratory infection. We knew it was a virus. We knew how virus spread, right? When HIV broke out, they thought it was a cancer. All of the research money at that time was going into cancer. There's a reason why it was called a gay cancer. When people brought up the argument, and I wrote about this in The Atlantic in March of 2020, that it was a virus, they were laughed out of the room. So this idea that it's we're fear, we don't know, it's like, No, within the context of the history of medicine, we actually knew a lot, right? And when someone like Deborah Burks was making the analogy to seasonal flu, and I felt like that was a way that she was trying to basically make COVID-19 legible to the population to say, you know flu, you know how we are one kid can get it and the other two kids can't get it. You know how the neighbor across the street has it, but then their next door neighbor doesn't it. You know how flu transmits she was reaching for, groping for an analogy that would make it in some way legible and clear. And people eviscerated her, you yeah. know? And so my point is that there was there was a way that we don't know anything about it. No, we do know something about it. We know how it works. We didn't know about HIV. We thought it was a cancer. We didn't know it was a virus. And we certainly didn't know it was retrovirus. Okay. At the very beginning. So from the gate, we know what this is and we still know what this is. Now, do we know all of the effects of long? Absolutely not. We know all of the ways that it potentially play out. On, you know, there's neurological stuff and the, the laboratory science is sort of mixed on what's happening. We don't know. There's a lot we don't know, but there's also a lot we do know. But the more we emphasize what we don't know, 
the more we play into the fear narrative. And when we place COVID within the history of medicine, we say that there's actually moments like cholera in the 19th century, HIV in 1980s, where people actually didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's super fascinating. I wanna um I wanna jump into your book a little bit here and and talk about um this new book that you've you spent a really long time um writing and researching and traveling across the world to research and and I wanna jump into it by um actually turning to um a, a one of the earliest um, doctors to call himself an epidemiology, someone that you and I both know, Gavin Milroy. So that's my in, man. In 1870, 1870, Milroy dies in the 1880s, but in 1870, he's at that time already had a career um, where he's a military doctor. And by 1870, he's the vice president of the Epidemiological Society of London. And he gave an address in 1870. And I think I think you you reference it in your book. And in that address, it's a it's a sort of like state of the field of epidemiology. So here's yeah. Milroy, and he's like an elder statesman by that point. And he's like, here is what epidemiology is. And I'm going to read you this quote because I want you to unpack it for us a little bit. He says, no other branch of natural science has been so stationary and unprogressive as epidemiology. He argued that the accumulations of experience do not seem to have rendered the conclusions of epidemiology at all more stable or steadfast. What has been confidently asserted one year is often contradicted a few years later, and doctrines accepted at one time are rejected at another, to be again perhaps brought forward with favor, and to be again repudiated or neglected. That is such an incredible uh, a quote uh, in address from Milroy, yeah. and I think yeah. it speaks to a lot of the ongoing, I mean, I think he really nailed it, of the ongoing public sentiment that we even see today around yeah. COVID-19 and its epidemiology. Yeah. You know, yeah. we hear a lot about the mistrust in the public discourse about epidemiological knowledge constantly changing and being unclear. And 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 I want you to maybe tell us about Milroy and tell us about this moment in in the 19th century that 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 really your book, you know, in some ways helps us to see in new ways um, you know, so much of the history of epidemiology, as 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 you and I have talked about, um, has is is so enamored with these myths around the origins of epidemiology, being around the heroics of somebody like John Snow and the Broad Street Pump. And I think what your book does is is in and once people read it, they're going to instantly see this. It it just asks us to to rethink this whole field of epidemiology, and and by looking at colonialism, by looking at race. And by looking at subjugated peoples and how Western epidemiologists engaged with and used subjugated peoples to think about the spread of disease, I think there's some really important lessons that we can learn to think about where epidemiology is today. Because I think, to be completely frank with you, I think a lot of people today feel the same thing that Milroy felt in 1870, that epidemiology is just always changing. It's, it's not clear. It's um, and, and that that can lead to mistrust. So so I wondered what you know, what, what are tell, tell us just tell us a little bit more about your book and, and you know, and then we'll go from there. But I'm but I'm interested to jump into this. OK, so first, um, I think this idea that he says that it's it's constantly changing. It actually circles back to your opening comment, which is epidemiology is a branch of medicine that's happening in real time. It's not something 
that people, I mean, people can study it, people can study, put together case studies, people can, you know, prepare, but ultimately it's something that they need to observe. It's like observational epidemiology. It needs to be happening at that particular time to understand how it's working and to develop the sort of preventative protocols and also to understand how it's working. I mean, just to hook back, let me just hook back for a second on the gay example, because it was actually a gay guy who collected the data from the Provincetown case study who was witnessing and observing what would later become recognized as like the quintessential case study to illustrate the Delta variant. And so it's like, we understand, of course, from a laboratory science perspective, from a virology perspective, yes, you're going to have variants. But the reality of it is, is that you have to, in real time, actually see the variant and see how it's working and see where it's actually presenting itself and among whom and especially among vaccinated populations. So like all of these things can only happen in real time. And I think that to circle back to this point about who matters the most, when we're thinking about epidemiology, we always have to think it's people at the center. It's not Fauci. It's not Burks. It's about protecting the most vulnerable people, but it sort of gets narrated as a story about these handful group of this handful group of scientists who are making all these decisions. So let me just go back to one thing that he says in the book. I mean, in the, in the, in the address and that'll kind of illustrate the larger theme of my book. He says an accumulation of experience. And this is a really interesting moment because where does that accumulation of experience come from? And what happens is, and this is the sort of the main point of my book is that Doctors are deployed beginning, I mean, earlier than 17, earlier than um, the mid 18th century, earlier than 1750s. But between 1750 and 1866, British doctors are deployed throughout the empire from the international slave trade to the expansion of colonialism and imperialism in the Caribbean and India. And they're there to provide medical services to the crew, they're there to safeguard. The, the crown's economic investment, but ultimately they become face-to-face -face with epidemic disease and they have to respond to it in real time. And they develop preventative protocols. They study the, the spread of it. Because they're part of the empire, they have access to this amazing bureaucratic network of record keeping that allows for reports to flow throughout the empire. And then they also have what all epidemiologists need, which is a bird's eye view, an opportunity to sort of rise above the actual particulars of the space and get a, and get a sort of aerial knowledge of what's happening. Now, later we would call that surveillance or mapping, but at this particular time, they're drawing on correspondence of doctors in various parts of the world. And those reports are being accumulated by people like Milroy. Um, Milroy at one point is in Jamaica during the cholera pandemic, and there are doctors stationed throughout the British Caribbean. He also has contact with Spanish doctors in Cuba. He has contact with American doctors. And so the empire has created this opportunity for him to be in touch with all of these people, to uncover what's happening um, in terms of the different pandemics or epidemics, to gather knowledge and to be able to see how it's unfolding in real time. He's then able to go back and accumulate this, quote, experience and develop a rational way of understanding a pandemic. Because when you're looking at someone like Snow, 
It's exploding in Soho. It's exploding in this poor neighborhood. There's chaos. There's morbidity. There's mortality. He's trying his best, but he's not necessarily contacting a doctor in the countryside, or he's not in touch with other physicians in Scotland. He doesn't necessarily even have the mechanism to do that. And he's caught up in that moment of treating patients, whereas the actual structure of imperialism has elevated these physicians above the fray of the chaos and allowed them to actually start visualizing disease spread. Now, here's the interesting point. They're able to visualize disease spread spreading because things like the slave trade have created a slave ship, which is what we would call a built environment that allows them to actually see the spread of disease. Colonialism has turned the sort of former plantation districts of Jamaica into labor regimes where they can now witness the spread of disease. Uh, Nightingale in Crimea, the doctors in the American Civil War, they're now also drawing on their military bureaucracy and turning battlefields into labor laboratories to see the spread of infectious disease. And what I noticed was, by and large, not always, because I'm also dealing with soldiers, but by and large, what we're really dealing with is, as you described, subjugated populations. We're dealing with the witnessing of the spread of infectious disease among poor and enslaved people. So now let's go back to College of Charleston, Gettysburg College. Let's go to a curriculum development meeting. Let's go to hey, I don't understand how the scientists have anything to do with diversity and inclusion. Okay, uh, I could teach a black scientist, a black astronomer, you know, some doctor. Okay, that's cute. But here's the thing. The very field of science grew out of this moment. And now most South Asianists would say that, yes, of course, so many of the social the disciplines came out of this. But this book is actually saying, look, the field of epidemiology, this field of science, actually is connected to the slave trade and colonialism. And you can't just say from a curriculum perspective, oh, slavery is something over here that's taught in the history department, and science is this reified discipline. It doesn't have any connection to it. This is actually the work of interdisciplinarity. This is the work of the liberal arts. This is the work of seeing how, at this particular moment, science and slavery were tethered together. They were connected to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Thank you so much for for sharing more about your book. And there there's so many interesting stories um, in this book. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about that I think is is integral to the early origins of epidemiology, but it's also something that we see today. We've seen with HIV/AIDS in the 80s, and we saw it again with COVID 19 um, unfolding last year. Is is the search for origins? That, that epidemiologists are bent in finding finding that person who started an epidemic um, or that thing that started an epidemic. And, and, I, and I want you to talk about maybe if you can think of a, a good example or two from your book, and you've got a lot of yellow fever or of smallpox or of cholera where, where, where we can crystallize putting this all together in an example where, you know, where epidemiology is at once trying to understand the spread of disease in, in a really powerful way using those bird's eye view tools of, of practical investigation. But then how, as, 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 a, as you're suggesting, how that's inflected by race and racial ideology from the outside. Right. right.
part of it is that the some historians know about Muslims. Um, some of them know about the ways in which Muslim people were placed in quarantine facilities, and this was part of the larger story of cholera. And if you look at that from a from an isolated perspective, um, it's it's an important story. But when you place it alongside of the broader history of colonialism, and you're looking at um, people in India, you're looking at people in the Caribbean, you're seeing another familiar pattern develop. You're seeing um, dispossessed populations being used as a way for doctors to track the spread of infectious disease. So uh, Muslims become another population of people like enslaved people, like um, colonized people that provide doctors with the opportunity to begin to map the spread of, of cholera and to sort of search for its origins. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, and, 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 you know, in your book, you have a lot of other examples of, of the way this works too. I wonder though, you know, to, to try to think about how, as you, as you described earlier, how, like, how we can, how we can try to make sense of that today and, and try to use that reframing of the history of epidemiology and race into something tangible, because, you know, you look around the, 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 the last 18 months and you see um, the way in which COVID-19 and, and, and health equality and racial dis, dis, disparity are, are all entangled together. And I think the obvious answer that, that you can say is obviously that they're entangled because they've always been entangled. Um, but I wonder how, how, how do we make this really complicated entangled history of epidemiology and race? How do we make, how do we communicate it? Because I think at one level, what I think that that you've identified in your work and, and it's something that I'm really fascinated with is are all of these really interesting entanglements that are that are powerful and lasting and structural. But it's also like this failure amongst epidemiologists to communicate every day, you know, the science of epidemiology. There's also a kind of way in which like there's a there's a there's a point in which historians of public health and historians of, of medicine and epidemiology need to make our history palatable as well. Um, to try to do real good in our communities. And, and, and I wonder, like, where, what does that look like for you? Well, I would say that we entered COVID-19 not in a vacuum, and we, we didn't enter COVID-19 in a blank slate. We entered COVID-19 at a moment when HIV-AIDS, for example, was spreading the most viciously among Black women in the Deep South. And we, we you know, we enter into a moment where people my parents' age, and especially, you know, what would have been my grandparents' age, lived at a time when um, there was, Black people couldn't even become doctors. You know, there was still, there were Black universities that were training, and there were certain places that they were training, but there was a wonderful letter, not wonderful, but evocative and important letter that was circulating on social media yesterday, where there you, you had um, a, someone who was Black applying for to medical school at Emory in 1959 and being and being rejected. So in other words, we've entered into this pandemic already in a charged political sort of context. We've entered this um, with all of these with all these problems where something like asthma is affecting more black people in Harlem than infectious disease, but we seem to only really care about um, popular uh, brown and black people when it comes to infectious disease. I mean, I think what I'm actually concerned about is worrying. Um, about something like 
COVID because COVID can COVID can get a lot of traction because it's an infectious disease. And what that could potentially do is obscure the other kinds of medical problems that are plaguing the black community. Heart, you know, you can look at heart disease, you can look at cancer, you can look at non-infectious disease. You know, you have to be concerned and think about the other kinds of things that are happening. In fact, I almost feel like the opposite, which is there's almost too much attention to COVID, mm. that it's not allowing us to see other things. Like the New York Times broke a really good story, 2018, about rates of HIV among black people. Um, in the South. And there was a really great uh, investigative journalist who went in and talked about prevention, talked about knowledge, talked about educating black people. All of these things are still there. HIV is still spreading. Yeah. And so I, I'm, I'm concerned about that. I'm, 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 I'm worried that we are just going to emphasize this infectious disease at the risk of missing these other problems that have been plaguing the black community for yeah. so long and have been plaguing the brown community. And yet at the same time, we see that it's not surprising that brown and black people were the highest, you know, were, were affected where I was in New York City, most by COVID-19. Why? Because they because most middle class people, and it was a class issue, it wasn't a race issue, most middle class people stayed home. They did work from home. They got on their computer. And what we said to poor people who were mostly brown and black in New York City was, you are an essential worker and yeah. you are living in a crowded public housing, in a crowded tenement, whatever it is. And we've given you this polish of the essential worker, but you are living five families to a one floor apartment, the one, one, you know, one floor that shares an elevator, like 10 families sharing an elevator in these congested places, five people in a one bedroom. And that's why the rates are increasing. And then you're forcing them to go to work at the grocery store or to work at the pharmacy or to work at the Rite Aid. And that's what's causing it. And then the statistic is saying, oh, the number of black people. Well, you can't really pull out race without talking about this class economic issue because I know a lot of black people who were fine and I knew a lot of white people weren't. So there was a class issue there. There was, you can't talk about race without talking about class. So I felt like there were so many unnuanced ways of thinking about this. And um, and then, of course, I mean, one of the things and that has not been reported as much, and it's sort of shocking, is the, the rate of infection among indigenous communities and why that hasn't gotten the kind of attention um, that it should. So I think we have to be concerned about how it's being reported. We have to think about the larger context that COVID didn't begin in a vacuum, it began in an already charged epidemiological infectious disease context, and that a lot of what allowed for the spread of the virus was connected to issues of political economy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I, you know, one of the things that that I've that I've been trying to wrap my mind around in the last eighteen months um, about COVID and the history of epidemiology is something that that you study in your book and and, and that you have a, a pulse on. And, and, that, and that is by the, by the early 19th century, by the time that, that people like Milroy are writing in the, in the mid 19th century, who are for the first time starting to call themselves epidemiologists and think about what they have been doing as a field um, and as a discipline, that they're, as you argue in Maladies of Empire, they, they, they put that together to call themselves a thing, epidemiology, epidemiologists and a field epidemiology through the global study of disease, 
Now, often in, in that period, it was brought through colonial and imperial structures, yes. But th- by the mid-19th century, epidemiology is global in scope and in reach, I would argue. And and what's so fascinating about that is, of course, that continues. And you know, we have all this really great history about global public health and its emergence and emergence of, you know, League of Nations Health and WHO. Right. And, and 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 then we we have some of these big stories, but one of the things I keep coming back to is like historians of epidemia, epidemiology and public health have long argued that that glo- that epidemiology becomes a, a globalized field of study. And, and there's people like Milroy that are saying already by the 1850s and 60s, in order to understand cholera, you need to understand the global spread of cholera. That's right. That's right. And, and so and so and so like so 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 to our moment today, um, when we were tracking um, COVID when it first broke out you know, from Wuhan to Iran to Italy, that was a familiar pattern. That just wasn't, oh, CNN's doing really good reporting. I mean, we always, you know, glo- the epidemics were always sort of comparative by nature. They were always trying um, their best to get an idea of what was happening. In fact, um, the, what I talk about at the end of the book is the International Sanitary Commission, which again is the precursor, as you're suggesting, to WHO and so forth. But they were sort of gathering information to say, all right, what does does quarantine work? And how does quarantine work? How does quarantine not work? And they were they were debating it, and they were giving their evidence, and they were showing it. And I, I think we were sort of reticent to actually engage in those kinds of conversations. We, especially Americans, were very much like, well, what's happening here? What's happening here? Without saying, wait we must be global. The only way we're going to get this is if we start inviting these doctors from Iran here. If we start Zooming with these people from Italy, we have to figure out what's going on in Israel. We can't just say, oh, well, Israel's got all this money. They bought out the vaccines. Forget it. Like, that's a point. We need to say it. You can be critical later, but figure out. They were the first to start presenting the variants. So a lot of that's there. I will say in the history of it, and I'm going to go out on the limb, so I hope that the historians in the room don't kind of uh, come after me on this. But I, I think there's that whole critique of what's called tropical medicine that has in many ways obfuscated the work of early epidemiologists. That tropical medicine has turned the work of some of these doctors into something that exoticized these places, that sort of um, thought about them through an Orientalist framework. And all that's true and the evidence is there, so I'm not disputing it, but it's actually obscured some of the ways in which that moment was like the kind of key bridge between Milvoy and then uh, the later work of WHO. It's, we can't just dismiss it as tropical. And of course, yes, what's happening with you know Warwick Anderson talking about the Philippines, yes, of course, but there's there's also something that's happening in terms of how science as a field is growing and developing, even if we don't like it. Hmm, that's interesting. I mean, I, I think there's still enormous amount of uh, research opportunity to think about global public health and, and in particular epidemiology as a global pursuit from the period of about, you know, 1880 until the 1950s. Um, right. And even early, but see also even early, I mean, like even, okay. I mean, even earlier, like even in that, even in that world of like the early 18th century, um, what I was trying to do in the book in terms of like punctuating it from, I mean, from 1750 to 1866 
was I was trying to say like, well, why am I picking 1750? And the reason why I did it was because there was a, a famous example about the um, the soldiers in the cell block in India had a, lots of different names. Um, but that was like a signature touchstone example that helped to prove the need for ventilation. But prior to that, 1720, 1710, you're still getting doctors in the Caribbean uh, and other places who are reporting on infectious disease and trying to do some kind of global health, but they're kind of isolated. Um, and so I would always push, I mean, you and I are different um, in terms of our chron chronological orientation, but I would go even earlier and you would kind of go later, but that's mm -hmm. fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder, um, given given your work on, on race and medicine and colonialism and epidemiology, I wonder if you share a fear that, that I've had from the outset of the pandemic, which is that um, as has happened in the past, that richer countries will um, produce vaccines, will roll out vaccines, there will be vaccine hesitancy. Right. That will be the stage that we are in right now. Right. And there will be massive public health uh, messaging to try to get more and more people vaccinated. Um, and then COVID-19 will, will become a disease of, of the global South. It'll become an intractable disease. And, and, and there's so many examples in the history of epidemiology where that has become the case. Um, and, and I wonder if if, if you have any insight there or, you know, we can think about past epidemics yeah. and, 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 you know, there's a, you know, historians of medicine and public health love to talk about cholera in the 19th century. And then so many of them don't talk about cholera in the 20th and the 21st century as one of the leading causes of death. Um, right. And there's an arc there that I think we have an ethical, moral obligation to, to talk about, to investigate. And, and yeah. it's one that's part of our world today of global public health. Right. I mean, I think, I mean, I think all that's right. I mean, I, but I would just say um, a couple of things. I mean, and I don't know because I'm not a virologist, but I think that given how highly infectious the variants are, I don't imagine that they are going to be relegated to the global South. And given the kind of global traffic that we have and the sort of circulation of commodities and everything. I don't think that will happen. I, but, but to your point, I track the virus every day on the New York times and I do a screenshot and I was watching it and I knew this puppy was going to blow up July 13th, just because I already saw the numbers starting to increase then. Um, and at the time there was a very um, soft murmur among a lot of white privileged people that they were going to get a second shot. And I thought a third shot, I'm sorry, a third right. shot. Right. Uh, and I thought that raises to me serious bioethical concerns when parts of the world don't have it. Most parts of the world. Yeah. Most part, right. Don't have it. And if they don't have it, you're actually going to be more vulnerable than you think you are now. Uh, so the reality of it is, is that, again, I mean, just from the vantage point of medical humanities, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. There are medical ethicists who can guide us through this kind, these kinds of conversations about do we, should we really get, you know, the third shot? And then the CDC, I think just announced, was it this week? You shouldn't. And they were like, no, but you know, three or four weeks ago, people were marching into Rite Aid in Texas and they were getting the third shot. And so mm -hmm. that raised a lot of bioethical 
medical, whatever kind of questions for me, um, mm -hmm. at least because of what's happening in other parts of the world. Um, and you know, real, real deep concerns. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I want to ask you as someone who is, has studied, uh, for, for this book and in sick for freedom and in stand by me, you've studied a whole bunch of infectious diseases in the past. I mean, you, you really have a, a breadth to your work that's really inspiring. And in order to do that work, you've had to do a lot of spend a lot of times in archives looking at, um, you know, manuscripts and newspapers and personal papers from the 18th century until the 1970s. I mean, that's truly incredible. Um, so so you're somebody that that knows um, what some of the pitfalls are with archiving epidemics and pandemics. And I, and I, and I wondered if we could just touch on that in the, in, in the, in the last few minutes that we have here yeah. and talk yeah. about like, what are some of the problems that, 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 that scholars like you and I face studying past epidemics and pandemics? And then what can we do now as activists to try to um, record this, the kind of stories about COVID-19 that, that we often want in the archives and that particularly, you know, for, for people like you and I that study race and medicine and public health, often the voices are, there's a lot of silences in the archives right. and the archives themselves, as you know, generations of scholars have argued, they are particular repositories of power. And, and, and I wonder like, what can we be doing now as, as historians of pandemics to try to protect certain kinds of voices and record certain kind of voices. Right. I mean, so the first thing is, I think there's huge wings within oral history that um, have begun massive efforts. And I think there are projects that come out of the U.S. South in terms of labor history um, by Jackie, Jackie Dowd Hall and others who went into poor sort of working class communities and just started interviewing people. Um, I feel like there's a project um, by Margot Kennedy at Princeton that did stuff on LGBT people in the workplace. Um, of course, there's the WPA project, which tried to capture enslaved people's, um, formerly enslaved people's memories. So, and there's a 9-11 project out of Columbia. So I think one of the things to do is like a group of historians of medicine might want to like just have lunch at a conference and think about putting together like an NEH grant or something to start funding this project and start doing it. I, when I was teaching, um, I can give you an example. Um, I'm old enough to say that um, I taught before the age of Trump when 9-11 still was a big deal in my students' imagination. And being at a small liberal arts college, I said to my students, all right, well, they were sort of still inspired by 9-11, 2010, 2011. And I went and we did a project where they just went into the local community and did interviews and then they did a documentary and they put it together and they preserved it at the um, college rare book room. So there are ways that you can just get your history of medicine class to go out there and start doing interviews and compile it with all of the great technological advances and just literally stored very simply and very easily at special collections at your university or at your local historical society. So I think all of those things are super simple to do and, and really effective. I would say that when you're doing the research in the 18th and 19th century, mm -hmm. I can share two quick examples. The first is this. Um, one, you have to like stop the keyword searches and we have to stop it. You're not going to find, like, I could say cholera until I'm blue in the face. Like, 
I keep on wanting to write a book about cholera in the 19th century. I tried to write it this time. Um, I And it turned out to be this, Maladies of Empire. I just went to the Newberry Library on Friday. And I, I was like, I can do every keyword search with every online thing from Gettysburg. But I showed up. I talked to an archivist. This is obviously having a lot of privilege and having research money and being able to go. I checked that. I'm checking my privilege and saying that. But... Once I got there and I start talking to them, they start showing me around those finding aids and you can't do the search for cholera. You got to know like who was the guy who just did broad surveys. So for me, the quick answer is military records have always been the key repository because military is huge bureaucracy. They're always capturing disease. So that was for my first book, The Civil War, for this book. But now I'm, I'm still trying to do this book on cholera and I'm at the Newberry and I'm trying to do indigenous people and I'm trying to figure it out. And you got to sit down with the archivist. And once you start telling them, they're going to be able to identify certain kinds of collections of people who provide it comprehensive overviews of places and once you do you'll get to it and within a couple minutes they were already talking to me about tb and i was like shit yeah. i can i please just do a color project i can't because now it's like you know the west is a sanatorium and there's tb and there's all this other stuff so now i'm like i can't say no to tb because the archive opened in this uh, other yeah. way for me so it's trying to stop that notion of the keyword search and um, also then learning the language, learning the language of not, you know, you'd be reading in English or whatever it is, but the language of how they talk about disease is often very different and who's going to be talking about disease. It's often not in the medical archives. It's, it's, you know, it's, you can get it in social archives and government archive records. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, and I wonder, like, if we can just be perspective here um, and, and do something that historians don't always want to do. But like, where, where in fifty years, when when historians of of, of medicine and epidemiology want to write the history of COVID nineteen, where are they going to go looking? Because, as as you and I know, like, if if all someone did was just you know at at the early research the early stage of the pandemic and just look at the presidential briefings remember when those happened when when former president trump gave those debriefings every day right. um and if you just read those and you read newspapers and then you listen to you know and then you read fauci statements you're not going to have a very good handle on the pandemic and right. you know that's something that um i've been so impressed um and and just really blown away by is this program covid calls because scott has done 308 this is 300 Amazing. and yeah. and this is a daily record of what everyday yeah. people are doing to experience this pandemic yeah. and so in some ways like i think and i and i wonder just to just to pontificate on this a little bit because i think it's so fascinating for us as historians to do this thought experiment is like in some ways our recording of this pandemic is going to be unlike any other pandemic that has come before it. So in some ways, maybe we're dealing with an unprecedented way that we are trying to capture this pandemic moment. Okay. Okay. Or this, can I, let me, let me just push back. Okay. On this, which is to say, I don't know how they're going to look at it, but I'll say this civil war produced billions of documents. Those documents just don't reveal material for people doing military history. They can be mined by women's historians, social historians, black historians, labor historians, etc. So in some way, all of this material around COVID 
might actually be mined by historians and diplomatic history and social history and other things because COVID is creating an archive. COVID is capturing the daily life. Its primary intended focus is to, is to record the pandemic. But its unintended consequence is that it could be giving us detail about things that we didn't even know. Do you see Definitely. what I'm saying? Like, yeah, and yeah. I think that, I think that to me is the interesting moment. So, COVID calls could be used by a medical historian, but it could also be used by a fashion historian to be like, "Why is Jim Downs wearing like a polo shirt from 1985?" Like, 40 mm -hmm. years later, like mm -hmm. it could be mined in different ways. There's unintended ways that the COVID narrative is producing a very prolific amount of material that yeah. can be used by historians in the future. Yeah. And that's something that I'm, that I'm, that I've been tried to be, I've tried to be really cognizant of in my teaching to try to teach students that, you know, I've been urging them to like the, for the, you know, the classes that I've taught from the beginning of the pandemic to, um, to do journaling, something that they can capture, even if it's just for themselves. I mean, I urge right. them to, Submit it to you know a local oral history project that I'm working on in Charleston, but you know I, just to get students to see that that this moment is one that you know we've already started to see this that when, whenever I ask people like I asked you about early memories of the pandemic, yeah. you know because of what we know about how historical memory works, we're are, we're still in the pandemic and we don't remember it the same way that we experienced it in the first few months. It's just sure it's nearly how memory works. Right. But also take up the other thing that's so interesting to me is that like what we think matters might not matter and what we think doesn't matter might matter. Like, so for example, like, you know, I, everyone thought in 1998, like the turning of 2000, like Y2K was going to be this big thing. Like, do you, I mean, do any 20th historians even talk about Y2K? Like, it's not a thing. And like, when we talk about 9-11 is like almost slowly receding, you know, Trump feels like the beginning of the 21st century, you know, it's like, so mm -hmm. I, I'm always just willing to just, and it's not a dodge, but I'm always just willing to say like, I don't know, because what they thought mattered and what I think mattered, like I'm a civil war historian sitting in Gettysburg. Those soldiers would have never thought that my focus would have been right. on formerly enslaved people and now colonized people and the Crimean War and the Civil War, they would have thought, well, how about how I ran up Culp's Hill? And it's like, yeah. okay, but no, yeah. but you know, so what they thought in the Civil War is not what I'm thinking matters. So yeah. it's complicated. It's a complicated, yeah. but I do think the, the record keeping is important. I mean, that's what Milroy was doing. That's what the epidemiologists were doing was they did see there was a value in keeping the records. And I think that's valuable for your students. That's valuable for your exercises in classes. That's yeah. things that we can do. I mean, to get students hooked to the history of medicine. Yeah. Interview your grandparents, interview your neighbor, interview your roommate and, you know, look at that interview and place it within the context of medical humanities and think about what matters to them. What's the story that they're telling is what you're asking. And that's a question that Rita Sharon and all these other people in medical narrative medicine are forcing us to think about. So you can do it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I think I think what's so interesting, the, the question that I think comes to my mind um, from 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 that kind of like activist pedagogy is like, and you mentioned 9-11, you know, a, a different kind of natural disaster, but um, but pandemics are natural disasters too. And, you know, you and I in some ways still have 
cultural mileage out of 9-11. I mean, you right. said, because you mentioned you were in you were in grad school right. living right. In, in, in New York City. Right, um, right. Right. I, I, during 9-11 was, was an undergraduate student. Right. And I have this like real, it's part of this real historical memory of my place in my time. And, and I remember even, um, in the couple years following still having professors do exercises and relate them to 9-11. Right. 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 But then at right. some point that you, you can't get mileage out of it anymore. Right. And I wonder with, I, I'm just really fascinated by this right now because as a historian of public health, that's my identity. That's my identity of my research. It's my public identity in my community. It's my identity in the classroom. I live it. I breathe it. That's, that's like a lot of my brain power. And, 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 and I, and I keep asking myself like how, how long does COVID-19 stay relevant in, 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 in all of that work? And it's so fascinating to me to think about um, because in other natural yeah. disasters, we, you yeah. know, we, we are in these moments where, yeah. where I think we're trying to make sense of the trauma that we yeah. experienced yeah. communities have experienced. And we right. want to talk to people and, and as educators, uh, you know, we want to ha- open our students to be able to see the world around them in delicate ways, right? And in ways that get out of their identity to step foot in other people's identity yeah. and empathize with them. And, and COVID nineteen has been, I think, and 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 will continue to be, I hope, a kind of way that we can we can do that kind of important intellectual and activist work. Right, but it might not be okay. So here's the thing: it might not be for everyone, but yeah. it might be for you. And you might continue to draw on as a touchstone case to elucidate broader themes, just like HIV AIDS might not be for everyone, but it still animated everything I did. Like, you know, when I was interviewed by the times on my first book, she's like, why did you do it? And I was like, HIV, like, can't you see the, you know, the analogy between smallpox and HIV, the government refused to recognize it. I mean, to me, it was just there. The second book, HIV, this book, HIV, this conversation, HIV, HIV is not relevant to a lot of other people, but it is for me. And so it becomes a way to make things legible. Um, But I will say really quickly, I think that's an interesting comparison because I wanted to write this essay. If you look back at the history of medicine, I mean, the history of medicine blows up because of HIV. I mean, I always give the example of um, Typhoid Mary um, and why anytime I'm on a podcast or a panel, I always forget everyone's Judith. um, Judy Levitt. Judy Levitt's book. And she has a whole thing at the end, I think at the epilogue about HIV. And so it's like so many people in that moment that were writing on other periods and places were finding the connection to HIV. I mean, all of Rosenberg's stuff, the dramaturgy of HIV. I mean, he's always kind of playing with it. It dies out for a lot of other people in the history of medicine. It does not become a touchstone moment. Um, maybe to our ben- maybe to our benefit, maybe to our demise, unclear. But it, it's been with me. It's been an animating force in how I understand it. And maybe this for you is an, ad- I mean, because I know you and you become a public intellectual because of COVID. You might've been interested before in things, but you're out there knocking those pieces out and being really engaged and really being involved because it's been a hook for you. Great, you know? Yeah, it's interesting how these how these layers of epidemics and identity fold onto one another. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, we um we've we we could go on for a lot longer, Jim, but I don't want to take up any more of your time. My guest today is Dr. Jim Downs. 
Check out Maladies of Empire, everyone. It uh, You can pre-order it through Harvard University Press. Um, when does it drop, Jim, officially? It's September 7th. I mean, I know it's already in the warehouse, so you can order it immediately. You should get it within a couple of weeks. Awesome. So, yeah, please, yeah. That's great. Um, look out for Jim in, in future yeah. projects. Um, thank you again for joining me for this really incredible um, conversation. You can join me again uh, tomorrow for COVID calls, where I'll be speaking more about epidemiology, history, and activism with Dr. Mandisa Mambali and Dr. Dora Varga. Due to some uh, serious time zone differences tomorrow, COVID calls will be live starting at 10 a.m. Eastern, although you can catch us anytime with the recording. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Jim. Thank you so much for having me.